Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 239. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, once again for bringing us to a place where we can sit and study your words. We are so blessed to have the, um, the Word of God that has been preserved for us, and we count it a privilege to be able to um, turn the pages and to allow the words to uh, penetrate deep into our hearts and into our minds. Give us, Lord, the will and the desire and the ability to walk it out to put it to practice, to um, make it a reality in our lives. Help us to um, demonstrate its truth to a world around us, a, a world that's just really enveloped in darkness and confusion and uh, self-centeredness. And now more than ever, as we're watching events unfold in the world that indicate that we're getting down to the last, um, probably, uh, down to the last really home stretch before Yeshua comes back. Lord, let us continue to be vigilant, watchful, and to have not just a sense of expectancy for your return, but also to increasingly be aware that there are just, well, Yeshua said it best, the, the harvest is ripe. And the time for us to let our light shine is is now more urgent than um, ever before. And so let us not be um, fearful. Let us not shrink back. Let us be bold in our witness and yet not be offensive. Lord, we don't have to be obnoxious. But the truth is the truth. And it cuts. It cuts a person deep. And so let us just um, speak truth to lies let us take a stand for your word and for your gospel and uh, demonstrate that yeshua is the one and only true answer to the problems that are plaguing mankind today so help us to have that attitude about us give us um uh, ears to hear eyes to see and um, a heart to understand and to do your will and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory b'shem yeshua oh man Thank you for joining me during these live internet studies. This is the uh, segment one of two segments, an hour and a half long study. This first segment is entitled Eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. You can see on your screen, we're in topic number nine, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse, part two, which is, which is Matthew chapter 24. We left off near this section of verses that I'll just read for you real quick. The glorious return of Christ. Verse 29 says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. What we've been engaged in is this a bit of excursus, feels like a bit of a digression, where if you remember earlier on into the chapter, let me scroll back up and show you. In verse 3, we read, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him, speaking of Yeshua, of course, came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they ask for a sign, or some authors interpret this as two signs. The, so we have the sign of the of your coming and the sign of the end of the age. And so I'm I'm going with the idea that there are actually two signs, but I'm not terribly put off if a teacher says there's just one sign. And so 
Um, what we find out when we read down through the rest of the chapter is that the disciples are asking about events that lead up to the sign of Yeshua returning back to planet Earth, which means they must have had this understanding already that he was going to leave, even though he's with them right now. And he hadn't left yet, but they he had already talked about that. And so that we don't have to assume that. We already know it's true. They talked about, hey, I'm going back to be to my father and I'm going to return there and I'm going to wait there until a certain time. So, of course, they're a little bit anxious about that. When are you going to return? And what will be the sign that pre- that accompanies your return? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, again, it could be one sign that they're talking about. It could be two signs. But either way, what we're, we're learning as we jump back down to where I was earlier, we're learning that when Yeshua is does return right and i'm taking this passage that we're looking at right now as the rapture not the second coming where he returns to planet earth to establish his kingdom but rather the rapture precedes even the second coming i'm taking that verse 30 when he says and then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky i'm taking that sign of the son of man appearing in the sky being the supernatural brilliance of yeshua's return itself which means if you look at verse 29 where he says but immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then he says and then the sign so this gives me the indication that verse 29 is describing a sign that precedes the sign in verse 30 which means there are two signs the sign of verse 29 and the sign of verse 30 that's the way i read it so this means that verse 29, with the sun, moon, stars uh, losing their light, etc., etc., going dark, that aspect is described elsewhere, which we're going to be looking at tonight. That aspect is described elsewhere, and I believe that's the sign of the end of the age. And then the sign of Yeshua's return it happens afterwards. And yet, if we follow the chronology correctly, verse 29 and verse 30 talk about signs, and yet, chronologically, the events happen in the reverse order. Yeshua returns first, i.e., whether you're talking about the rapture or the second coming, it still happens prior to the end of the age, meaning the end of the 70th week and the end of mankind's um, rebellious um, push against God. All that happens at the very, very end of the 70th week, Armageddon, Battle of Armageddon. And then, of course, the next significant event would be the ushering in of the middle mineral kingdom so let's look at what this might look at on a chart um we don't have to look at these parallels but you can see from just briefly looking at the parallels from matthew 24 when you drop your eyes down to verse 20 not, i'm sorry to where it says under matthew 24 number 29 see on the parallels it says celestial disturbances down there i'll highlight this in post-production and then in revelation 6 and 7 this corresponds with the sixth seal right revelation 6 12 through 17 that whole slice of events is what we're uh kind of examining right now the celestial disturbances followed quickly or really immediately by the raptured saints so what would this look like on another chart that i've been borrowing well if you look at the bottom of the chart with the seals and just follow all the way to near the right where it says sixth seal sign in the sky See, there's an arrow pointing there. And then as you trace the line from the sixth seal uh, arrow upwards, you see that this takes place um, during the second half of the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year time frame that we're, the many people call the seven-year tribulation, but I don't. 
unless you want to call the first part tribulation and the second part great tribulation i could go with that but otherwise um so you let your eyes move up and you see that this corresponds six seal signs corresponds with the same time frame of the beginning of the day of the lord which corresponds with coming of the son of man date unknown meaning that's the rapture right there so the great tribulation in blue there is cut short by the introduction of the sixth seal the sign of the end of the age with which then is followed immediately by the sign of christ's coming which is the supernatural brilliance that pierces the darkness that was created by the sixth seal the signs in the sky the cosmic disturbances let's look at a few more charts um in this chart this would correspond to these two arrows kind of kissing one another that i'm kind of circling highlighting with my mouse uh, uh cursor there um the pre-wrath rapture the white arrow pointing up and then the brown, the black arrow pointing down where it says second coming. Um, I don't know if I would call that second coming. I would call that rapture or I wouldn't put the second coming right there. Meaning um, the second coming is often a term that's simply used to refer to Yeshua touching down on planet Earth after um, riding the right horse and being prepared to defeat antichrist armies i would call that the second coming but if you want to call the rapture the second coming i'm not going to argue too terribly much with you either but let's look at two more screens look at this chart uh, borrowed from zion's hope uh marv uh rosenthal's um uh, uh organization um that is now being run by his son the 70th week of daniel which is known as the um, seven the the seven year tribulation or something like that, is broken up into two time frames of three and a half three and a half years. So you can see the numbers one two three four five six and seven correspond to the seven seals, and we've already looked at one through five. But now when you look at number six, this is the cosmic disturbance, which is this sign in the heavens which is the darkening of the sun the moon turning to look like blood obviously it won't turn to blood that's that's an impossibility i believe unless it's a supernatural occurrence but it'll appear that way and then the fall the stars falling from the sky or some type of um heavy meteor activity or um comets whizzing by or the the far the scars themselves moving in in a in a way that's unnatural either way it's supernatural something that's more than a mere say eclipse or a blood moon or a shooting star or um you know the the what do we call those things the leonid showers or i can't remember the names of the the, the meteor showers that happen regularly or a few times a year it'll be more than that it seems to be something that god says these 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 signs themselves are enough to cause humanity to be shocked into the horror that the wrath of God is about to be poured out. Notice on the chart here, that's called the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord there at the far right of your chart. So the day of the Lord is um, given a special place on God's calendar. It's spoken about numerous times in the Old Testament, uh, Tanakh, and it's talked about in the New Testament as well. Looking at another chart where we take the same time frame and we kind of zoom in on the part where that i want you to see where it's where we're looking at six and seven on the seals if we look at the cosmic disturbances and kind of open that up a little bit reading from at the bottom of the chart reading from left to right we have the cosmic disturbances happening first the sixth seal being broken from revelation corresponding to what joel already recorded in math in uh, chapter 2 verse 31 about the sun moon and stars behaving 
in a supernatural odd way, right? Becoming kind of supernaturally dark everywhere in the world. And thus, this allows for the supernatural brilliance of Christ's return to be even more dramatic because everything's so dark, the lights are turned out, what Van Campen called in his book designed, what he called the black hole effect, right? So we've got that darkness, and then from there, we see all these other events, convergences that happened before the seventh seal. We're not going to get into those tonight, where we talk about the coming of Elijah, we've got the, then the day of his wrath, his being either God slash Yeshua's wrath, the wrath of the Lamb. We've got the sealing of the 144,000 and the great multitude in heaven that shows up. That would be the rapture. We've got the last trumpet being blown there that Paul talks about in Corinthians. And then we've got the apostasy and man of sin that um, happen or that are uh, key characteristics of that time frame. I'm not saying that the Antichrist shows up at that point in time. We're just talking about that there's a significant um, uh, point where uh, uh, the apostasy itself is um, earmarked or um, it's pronounced. I think it maybe even start very early on with the Great Tribulation itself. But um, the Day of the Lord is this event that God says enough is enough and it's time to pour out judgment. That's really the point of this little chart here is that it begins with the, that the Day of the Lord begins with the cosmic disturbances. So having said all that, let's turn to uh, Robert Van Campen's book and finish where we left off. I believe this is... Um, uh, I believe we'll finish this tonight. This is chapter 16 out of his book, and we're near um, page 300. And we're talking about this sign of the... Um, let me scroll up a little bit so you can see what we're talking about. We're talking about the glorious appearance of Christ, the sign of the uh, the sign of Christ's coming, right? You can see it there on your screen. And so... Though the world is cast into utter darkness and still in terror at the sign of the end of the age, the second sign, when, while, the, while the world is still cast into darkness, let me just read this part and then I'll jump down to where we left off. With the world cast into utter darkness and still in terror at the sign of the end of the age, the second sign, the sign of Christ's coming. So the second sign is the sign of, the com of Christ's coming, even though it's out of order of the chronological events. It's the second sign based on the disciples asked a question which entailed two signs, and it's the second sign in the order of when we got down to Matthew 24, 29, he talks about the sixth seal, and then he says in verse 30, and then the sign as if it's a second sign, or at least at least it's a, a second occurrence. So that's why Ben Campen calls it a second sign. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, which may be interpreted as the sixth seal by some Bible uh, prophecy teachers, or maybe its own separate sign, which I'm going with, the supernatural brilliance that we're talking about. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, Jesus said, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of, sky, of the sky with power and great glory. And so we're, we're describing the supernatural brilliance that pierces the darkness. So that's Matthew 24, 30. And Jesus explained just a few verses earlier, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be, verse 27. And even though that's just an allusion to perhaps maybe the speed at which the uh, rapture is going to, and suddenness at which the rapture is going to befall planet Earth. In other words, it's not going to be some event that's dragged on for uh, days and months and years, rather it'll be something very quickly, a snatching away. The Greek word is harpazo, which refers to this quick snatching away out of danger, like a parent might 
see a little child in the street about to be run down by a car and the parents able to run over and grab the arm of the small child and snatch them away from sudden danger uh, right uh, right just very quickly suddenly the child doesn't even know what's going on almost that's the word harpazo which from where we get our word the greek the um latin word raptura raptura or rapturo rapturus uh, rapturan one of those uh, latin words um and then we get our english word rapture out of that second coming so we're talking about this flash from the east to the west a lightning flash as it were right flash lightning doesn't hang around too long in the sky either it just it's there one moment and if you're not looking directly in that in the in the direction where lightning hits you just notice the light around you that's it and then the, if you turn around and try to look and see the lightning sometimes it's it's gone by then well there will be this as van Kamen calls it a supernatural brilliance which is this glory of yeshua but we remember that because of the relationship that yeshua shares with the nature of his father the Old Testament describes it as the glory of the Lord, and we get the impression that it's talking about the Lord God, Yahweh, but from a Trinitarian understanding of Scripture now, we can realize that the Old Testament verses that talk about the glory of the Lord, we now know that this is Yeshua. He is the glory of the Lord. He is the glory of His Father. He is the glory of Yahweh, because He is Yahweh veiled in flesh. He is the uh, he bears the the same essence as God. That you know, they share the same essence. He is very God in essence, even though he's fully human in his uh, humanity. He's, he's he's got a human nature too. So let's scroll down into this chapter. So we're talking about the glorious appearance of Christ, which is the glorious appearance of the Lord, which is the Lord's glory spoken about in the Old Testament. So we've got uh, numerous references, obviously in the New Testament. But what about those people who don't read the New Testament, such as? Um, apostate Judaism today, which is rabbinic Judaism, will will they have no excuse for missing what's going to be happening? Yeah, they will, because it is confirmed in the Old Testament. So let's read this part. Van Campen says, For nearly 2,000 years, faithful saints of God have been looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. And as I may interject, this is one of the, the stronger Trinitarian passages, because if we follow Granville Sharp's rule of Greek, which talks about um, the relationship between one uh, subject or one nominal, uh, one, one uh, reference in a passage, yet two additional kind of almost... Um, uh, adjective phrases or whatnot. Um, then we've got the appearing, right, which is a, a noun, a, a, a verb, but it's playing the parts of a noun, so we'd call it a gerund there. The appearing of the glory of our great God, right, so we've got adjective and the noun, great God and, right, article, Savior, I'm sorry, not article, <laughs> conjunction. Uh, Savior, Jesus Christ. Savior is um, a noun, but it's a description of Jesus Christ, which is a proper noun. So the point being that is in the Greek, the one appearing in the in the uh, in the verbal form there, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. The conjunction and there is connecting great God and Savior, which. The reference is Jesus Christ. So the point being that this is a Trinitarian leaning passage. In other words, there's no reason to put a comma after the word God, as if Titus was saying, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God, comma, and, and then fill in with the context or supplied word appearing of Jesus Christ. 
right, our ads and Savior, as if God and Savior are two different people. But instead, Granville Sharp's Greek rule demands that the God and Savior are the same person. Okay, that's kind of a little bit of a tangent, but it's it's relevant for our study now, not because we're doing a Trinity study, but because the Old Testament describes the glory of the coming of the Lord, and yet the context of many of the passages that we're going to be reading about in the Tanakh are clearly of Yahweh and His glory, and yet without the benefit of understanding the way the New Testament reveals the Incarnation, not realizing that Yeshua is that glory, we are meant to understand that we're talking about Yahweh God, not necessarily and exclusively the Father, but Yahweh God, and therefore His glory is His Son, right? Yeshua is the glory of the Father. He is the glory of God in that respect. So, now we can read the passages out of the Old Testament afresh, realizing that Ah, the coming of the Lord that was prophesied in the Old Testament is, in fact, the coming of Yeshua, and yet it's not exhausted even in that aspect, because God himself told Israel over and over again that I will dwell among you, I will um, be your God, you will be my people, and yet um, Yeshua partially fulfilled that when he came to earth, when John describes it as we, 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 um, he, he, he pitched his tent and dwelt among us, right, John chapter 1. Um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and yet that's just partial fulfillment because God ultimately has to come and dwell with us in his fullness, but he can't do so while we're uh, rebellious and living in wickedness and in sin. So he's got to prepare his people. He's got to purge us. He's got to cleanse us. And that's kind of what all of this tribulation is going to accomplish is it's going to accomplish the purging and the cleansing of Israel, uh, bringing her to her knees in repentance for her God and for her Messiah. So, um, as we read, the, keep reading here, Dan Campbell says, because of God's supernatural, I'm sorry, I skipped over the first Peter reference, upheld in that hope by the power of the indwelling spirit, they willingly, quote, share the sufferings of Christ and keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, right, that's Yeshua in context, the revelation of his glory, they may rejoice with exultation. 1 Peter 4.13. But don't get lost. The New Testament references to the glory of Yeshua are the one and the same as the glory of the Lord, a.k.a. the glory of Yahweh, the glory of the Lord of the Old Testament. Meaning, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Lord Yahweh of the Old Testament is God, is Yeshua, right? That's our understanding. And yet, it's, it's, it's God, um, and yet, you know, the Father is God, the Son is God, so they're both, they both share the title Yahweh, um, and they both share the title God. It's kind of a, a family title, a family name, as it were. Okay. And yet, it's not two gods, one God, right? Factor that in. Because of God's superabundant grace, believers not only will rejoice in the manifested glory of their Savior and stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy, right? Jude 24. But will even be actual partakers in that glory, 1 Peter 5 1, and compare from Colossians 3 14. Even compromising believers who enter the 70th week will share in that glory, having been made pure and blameless by the refining persecution of Antichrist's great tribulation of the elect of God. Gives us kind of a context of why God's going to allow the, the um, tribulation on. Um, otherwise, what we would call righteous humanity, righteous humans who have been. Um, identified by God as redeemed, right? Christians, genuine believers, as well as God's allowing a persecution to come upon Israel 
We call this time of persecution for Israel the time of Jacob's trouble. And it it's a, for the same purpose to purify her, to um, cause her to uh, come to a place where the darkness in her is purged because of the tribulation, because of the persecution, because of the forcing her to choose one side or the other. Is she going to side with Antichrist, take his mark, and worship the beast, and then prove that she is unrepentant? Or is there going to be a remnant of Israel that turns to God in faith, in true repentance, as God pours out a spirit of grace like Zechariah talks about, and then Israel looks upon him and mourns for him like one mourns for an only son. We know the passage that I'm talking about. Van Campen continues, that the same divine glory that will infuse God's saints will obliterate his enemies, commencing with Antichrist, where we read from Paul, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And the word coming there has the sense of the br- the supernatural brilliance, the brightness, I believe, if I were to look up 2 Thessalonians 2.8. In fact, let's just go ahead and do it. Um, let's duplicate that tab so I don't lose it. And then let's turn to 2 Thessalonians just briefly. We'll do a, 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 a section on a topic section on the Thessalonian chapters uh, in time, but for now, I'm just going to give you a sneak preview. Where am I at? Um, there we go. We're not there. We're here. Confirmed in the Old Testament. That means I don't need that one. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Let me take a look at that real quick. Chapter 2, scrolling down to verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will eliminate with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So if I click on this passage and bring up the parallels, um, so we look at the NI, uh, NIV, it says the, the splendor of his coming, NLT, splendor of his coming, ESV, splendor of his coming, Berean standard, majesty of his arrival, Berean little, appearing of his coming, KJV, brightness of his coming, brightness, okay, there's the word I'm looking for, um, earlier, uh, Van Campen quoted as the appearance that's the word i was looking for i said it's coming but it's the appearance that's the one that uh when it says the appearance we're thinking okay someone someone shows up but the literal greek word um could be translated if i look at pull up the greek here and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the lord jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and abolished by the majesty the epiphania um, the noun and the date of him and the singular strongs number 2015 appearing manifestation manifestation glorious display so you see that there if i even drill in a little bit further uh to the um concordance uh here or let me pick on strongs instead of the uh, other one instead of um the uh, the other uh, concordance using Strong's concordance. This word uh, is translated even as appearance or brightness. So um, very short uh, entry there. But the point I was looking for is that brightness is one of those nuances to this particular word. So the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to end by the brightness. Brightness. That's our theme. This light. This supernatural glory. So. Is this confirmed in the Old Testament? Oh yeah, you bet. Van Campen um, records. Numerous Old Testament passages reveal that the Messiah will come to judge the world. (coughs) 
excuse me, uh, the Messiah will come to judge the world, restore the nation of Israel, and establish his earthly kingdom. So we're talking about the second coming of Christ. When we zoom out, we're just talking about the second coming, one event. But when we zoom in, we can see that this entails the rapture, as well as the battle of Armageddon, as well as his... Um, uh, kind of tromping around Edom and things like that, which we'll get to in time, so don't worry. But Van Campen continues, although many Messianic prophecies were a mystery to uh, even to faithful Jews in Jesus' day, they did clearly understand that the Lord's coming to judge and to reign would be accompanied by great glory. So the Jewish people reading their Bibles of the day, and even Jewish people today, if they're paying attention, are looking for the glory of the Lord to return to planet earth specifically when we look at ezekiel he would be returning from the way of the east to return to his temple so we're talking about the glory of the lord yahweh and yet now we know with trinitarian eyes that we're talking about part of that includes the glory and return of yeshua to rapture his saints and then his second coming or his return to establish and usher in his own kingdom in the thousand year millennium Continuing, they were well acquainted with Isaiah's warning to the ungodly that, quote, in the last days, right, speaking of the time period of the 70th week, the last days, and a description of the day of the Lord. When we talk about the last days or in that day or something like that, uh, Isaiah 2, 2, during God's day of reckoning, right, so sometimes it's called the last days, plural, but other times it's simply referred to as the last day or in that day or the day of God's reckoning. Not to be confused that it's just going to take place in a 24-hour time period. I don't believe that's what the day here means. We're just simply, simply talking about a specified time period on God's calendar that God has set aside for the pouring out of judgment upon wicked and unrepentant humanity and upon the uh, Antichrist eighth beast final empire, right? The new world order that he's going to judge with his day of the Lord activities, which would primarily include the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments that we read about in the book of Revelation. So Van Campen says that during that day of reckoning, quote, and this is from um, Isaiah as well, men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and before the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. And we know that um, quote there from verse 19 of Isaiah 2 is picked up again by John in the book of Revelation when he's talking about um, the opening of the seventh seal and men seeing the sign, the sixth seal, you know, the convergences in the sky, the cosmic disturbances, and they, they go into the caves and the holes of the earth um, is it talking about going into bunkers and bomb shelters? Could be, because they believe maybe World War III and nuclear weapons are going to be raining down, and they very well could be coinciding with what's going to take place in heavens, because who knows what type of wars will be uh, in uh, operation at the time, given you know the... Um, volatility of what takes place in the middle east on any given day i mean look at what's going on in the news right now between israel and hamas which could very well um escalate into a war between israel and hezbollah to the north which means iran will get involved which means probably the united states will get involved and european powers will get involved etc etc ultimately maybe even russia might get involved right turkey gets involved etc etc so it just kind of keeps um snowballing into this bigger um bigger problem which might involve you know, uh, larger weapons than just uh, uh, missiles that uh, someone like Hezbollah or Hamas could fire, but we're talking, you know, is Iran's a nuclear power. So is that going to cause the people of peoples of the earth to say, you know, 
let's go scramble and get into our bomb shelters, you know, the holes dug into the ground, which Isaiah describes as caves of the rocks and holes in the ground. Could that be bomb shelters? I think there's a very real possibility and probability that that's what he's describing, even though in his day he just simply described it as caves of rocks and holes in the ground. Guys, understand where I'm going there. All right, let's keep reading Van Campen. They were also well acquainted with and greatly rejoiced in that same prophetic prophets promised to God's faithful people in the last days. Listen to this quote from Isaiah 60. Quote, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and pay attention to the language. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Right? The glory of the Lord in the Old Testament is Yahweh, and yet now we know with eyes opened by the Incarnation, and by Yeshua, and by the Holy Spirit, that the glory of the Lord is Yeshua. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, which Van Campen puts in brackets, the sign of the end of the age. Right? The supernatural darkening of the sun, the moon, and the stars. That's the sign of the end of the age. But, Isaiah continues, the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you, which Van Campen identifies in brackets as the sign of Christ's coming. So, it seems to match directly with what we just read in Matthew 24, 29, and 30. Even the the chronology is the same. Uh, uh, Isaiah continues, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness, there's that Greek word that we were looking at earlier, the Epiphanes, the Epiphanes, the, uh, what was the Strong's number? Um, the, um, uh, the Epiphania, right? The appearance, the brightness, I believe, if I were to look that verse up, uh, the Isaiah passage in the Septuagint, look at the corresponding Greek, it would probably be that same Greek word. But, um, the brightness of your rising, Isaiah 60, verse 1 through 3. Emphasis added by Van Campen. All right, so Van Campen reminds us both the warning and the promise vividly depict the awesome divine glory that will accompany the return of the Lord. But whereas, watch this, the splendor of his majesty, quote-unquote, will fill the godless with unspeakable terror, it will fill the Lord's faithful with unspeakable joy and gladness as Christ's own glory not only comes upon them, but shines through them for all the world to see. 1 Peter 5.1, compare from Colossians 3.4. The other prophets also speak of the manifestation of God's glory at the return of the Lord, disclosing the same sequence of events. And then we begin to read in Isaiah, I'm sorry, in Zechariah, in his vision, uh, the angelic surveyor Zechariah was told. So let's keep reading from our Bible here, from the Tanakh. Here's Zechariah, quote, For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, speaking of Jerusalem, and I will be the glory in her midst. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heaven, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. Remember, the language of Isaiah is pouring through the current exile that Israel was going through during this time period in the 500s BC when she had been deported off to Babylon by um, you know King Nebuchadnezzar who sacked Jerusalem, right? The, the first uh, pagan king, Gentile king to ever do so. He sacked Jerusalem and carted off all the goods and the gold and the treasures and the people. He left a remnant in Babylon, but he carted off the people to Babylon, right? Including um, uh, Daniel, who writes from that location as well, or from, uh, uh, I believe I'm getting that right. And 
the point for our story here is that Zechariah's prophecy is cast in the historical event of the Babylonian captivity, and yet we realize now through the um, benefit of what's called prophetic telescoping, where the prophets will use language of a current um, tragedy in Israel, a current captivity or judgment being poured out on Israel by God, the, the prophets will take that opportunity to speak by the Spirit of God and describe not one event, but two events, what we call a near event and a far event. And so the near event would be the current exile in Babylon and the judgment entailing all of that, and they eventually return back to Jerusalem in that day, which did happen. And yet the far event is another type of captivity, per se, to Israel, where she was already scattered from outside of the land again, and then brought back into the land, and then God pours out judgment on those nations that um, took her captive. And so, could there be another time period in the future where Israel gets captive and drawn into Babylon? Well, of course, that would be somewhere near Iran or Iraq or something to that effect these days. Um, Iraq, I'm saying. Uh, right? Um, Saddam Hussein's uh, Iraq. Uh, Babylon or get get carried off into there. Could, could that happen? Well, yeah, it could happen, I suppose. But it would have to be something that allows for these prophecies to have a second, um, a second uh, prophetic, uh, um, uh, um, what do we say, fulfillment. So, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, Christ's second coming. I, I'm saying that because if you're just looking at this prophecy as only being in the past, then you're going to miss the significance of the fact that it foreshadows and foreshadows of Yeshua's return which is still future. And you're thinking, Israel's not in Babylon right now. Israel's dwelling in her land. She's not significantly dwelling in Iraq or anything like that. There might be Jews living in Iraq today, but primarily Israel lives back in Israel, back in the where she lives today. So you have to understand that these prophecies are playing um, dual purposes, near and far events. And that's why Van Kampen inserts in brackets Christ's second coming. You're like, well, Christ didn't return in the 500s, 600s, I'm sorry, 500s and 400s BC when Israel was captive in Babylon. Of course, Christ didn't return. There was no Christ to return at that time. There was the word of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, you know, the, the things like that, but there wasn't the incarnation. Yeshua hadn't even been born yet. Hello. So, yeah, we're talking about near far prophecies. So, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Also, sometimes the prophets will speak of the earlier events with one breath, and then without even picking up their pen, they'll keep writing, and then the very next sentence in the passage talks about, jumps all the way forward into the future, you know, 2,000 plus years, and starts describing events that are in the future. And that's because the Spirit of God is writing, and He knows the end from the beginning, and He can, he can speak that way. The prophets themselves may not have been aware of that. They may not know that that's what's happening, that with one sentence, they're describing an event close to their day, and then in the very next sentence, without even lifting their, their quill, if that's what they're writing with, they end up starting writing about events that are 2,000 years into the future from their day, from their perspective, even more than 2,000 years. You know, could have been uh, something like that. So, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after... Glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you during the day of the Lord. You're thinking, what? The day of the Lord was not in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is something that's future. Yes, that's my point. For he who touches you, God says, touches the apple of his eye. 
Then you, Israel, will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dell in your midst declares the lord zechariah 2 5 through 10 emphasis added by van campen let's keep reading even the psalms portray the relationship of god's glory to the judgment of the wicked and the final redemption of his people speaking of the end times as if they had already transpired which the, the prophets often do they'll speak in what's called prophetic fulfillment um as if the the prophecies already come to pass um, you know, when it talks about, for instance, Isaiah 53 of the Lord uh, being pierced, Messiah being hung on a tree and wounded, it's using prophetic past tense as if Yeshua had already gone through the suffering and pains of the, the, the cross of Calvary. And yet we know from Isaiah's perspective, when he wrote that famous Isaiah 53 passage, it was still future. And yet, who has believed our report? Who is, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it talks about that he was wounded, past tense, but it's prophetic past tense. So, same thing happens here in Psalm 97. Let's read. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. When it says islands there, from Israel's perspective, we're talking about um, countries beyond the Mediterranean Sea. We could be talking about um, Europe. We could be talking about America, right? Those would be considered islands from Israel's ancient Israel's perspective. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Watch this. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world, past tense. The earth saw and trembled, past tense verbs. The mountains melted, past tense, like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people have seen his what? Glory. Psalm 97, 1 through 6, emphasis added by Van Campen. So we see again the same themes of this glory, this brilliance, this brightness that are um, in the same pack, uh, passages that deal with the Lord's judgment upon humanity and the trembling of the nations at the coming of the Lord to not only judge the wicked, but to ultimately rescue the righteous. So let's keep reading. God's glory in ancient Israel. Again, we're talking about the sign of Christ's coming and the brilliance that accompanies that as the glory of the Lord that was spoken about in the Old Testament. Van Campen continues, Further evidence that the sign of Christ's coming is the supernatural manifestation of God's glory is found in the scriptural history of Israel. From the time the tabernacle was built under the direction of Moses until an unspecified time later, probably just prior to the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century BC that I just spoke about earlier, God's glory was present in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And I alluded to this earlier, but now we're going to read about it. This is Ezekiel's um, uh, recording of the glory of the Lord that departs and then is going to eventually return. Let's read Van Campen. This, this glory of God was present in a way that was unique, i.e. localized and restricted, and by its very nature beyond human understanding. Moreover, Van Campen records, God's glory was not visible even to the high priests, because to have beheld his glory would have been to die, right? Exodus 33, verse 20. So we know that we're talking about the glory that um, was localized over the Ark of the Covenant 
right the mercy seat and the priests went into that location only once a year during yom kippur and even then there was thick smoke and the incense was burning and it was dark there were no um, menorah lamps on that side of the veil where the ark of the covenant was so they weren't looking at anything it was darkness and there was smoke even if there was any light that was coming from the menorahs on the other side of the curtain which likely there wasn't because of the thickness of the curtains point being they were in complete darkness when they were splashing the blood on the four horns of the mercy seat the four corners when they were dashing the blood so they didn't see anything the glory of the lord was there and yet um they could not be they couldn't behold it so it's a, it's almost like an oxymoron or a, a paradox the the glory and the brilliance of the lord was shrouded in darkness even we read earlier in the book of psalms that it says um uh clouds and thick darkness surround him I've often kind of just marveled at the descriptions of God. You know, he dwells in unapproachable light, and yet he dwells in thick darkness? You know, where's the light stop and where does the darkness begin? Where does the darkness stop and where does the light begin? I mean, God is light, and Yeshua is the brilliance of God, right? So we're talking about the themes of light and brightness and fire. And yet at the same time, their their descriptions of God is cloudy and thick darkness surrounding him. So it's it's a mystery, right? How does that factor in? How is it how is he simultaneously in darkness and in light? How is his glory both brilliant and yet something that man can't um approach? Okay, so just think about that for a moment. The prophet Ezekiel had the heart-rendering task of reporting the departure of God's glory from the temple because of the continued and unrepentant sinfulness of Israel. In his vision of the four wheels, Ezekiel witnessed the glory of the Lord going, quote, up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So we got those two themes again. We got clouds, and then yet we have brightness right are they bright clouds are they dark clouds you know don't don't think too hard about that so that's ezekiel 10 4 but the glory ezekiel says continued to move farther away as it departed we're on page 302 of van Campen's book the sign as it departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim when right that's what we're talking about uh, the uh, mercy seat the ark of the covenant and then when the cherubim departed they lifted their wings and rose from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the lord's house moving uh with the cherubim right so we're not just talking about the ark of the covenant but we're talking about physical cherubim now moving with the cherubim the glory of the god of israel now hovering with them over the east gate still further farther from its original dwelling place right ezekiel 10 18 and 19 and then finally ezekiel records that the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the god of israel still hovered over them and the glory of the lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is the which is east of the city so it's like he's moving away from the temple moving in a direction of the east and he's pausing at certain places to kind of stop and reflect on the um disappointment of israel's rejection of god and the glory of the lord being personified here is moving in stages away from the temple in a direction of going east 
And then at that point, Ezekiel's vision ended, and we can safely assume, Van Kempen says, that the glory ascended from the Mount of Olives, i.e. the mountain which is east of the city, to heaven from which it came. He continues, Ezekiel later had the privilege of also predicting the return of God's glory to earth. So now we're talking about an event that hasn't taken place yet. Ezekiel is given a supernatural tour, as it were, of the restored temple, which isn't here yet. A temple which I believe, given the dimensions of the temple that have never been um, witnessed by humans, I believe this is the description of the millennial temple that Yeshua himself will oversee or, in fact, build supernaturally. Could be one or the other. But it's certainly not to be confused with the interim temple or the Antichrist temple or the tribulation temple. Um, that will be defiled by the Antichrist at the midpoint of the week. Whether it's a full-blown temple, we don't know, or whether it's simply some small tabernacle-like structure, tent of meeting like we had in the Old Testament, um, with, that Moses went to meet with God at the tent of meeting, what we call in Hebrew the Ohel Moed, tent of appointment, literally in the Hebrew, the, um, uh, the Hebrew word suggests. Well, it could be that, and this allows for uh, a mercy seat that exists in that small tent from which, from where there's a, 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 a an altar and a mercy seat, an altar on the outside of the temple, I'm sorry, an altar on the outside of the tent, and then a mercy seat on the inside where God's glory resides, just like it did in the Old Testament. Um, and yet, the altar on the outside will be used for animal sacrifices, and then the altar on the inside will be for the Yom Kippur sacrifice. So there's two altars one on the outer what what the book of hebrews calls the outer and the inner um portions of this arrangement the outer um temp uh, tab, um outer uh altar for the daily sacrifices and the ones that people bring for their uh, various sin offerings and then the inner one which was reserved only for the yom kippur offering point i'm trying to make is that that arrangement whether it be a, a very small tempted meeting structure or be a large full-blown temple that um the dome of the rock has allowed to exist which i mean the the, the arab powers that are going to have to really be bent over backwards to allow that to happen but that's going to be defiled by antichrist it'll be defiled at the midpoint of the week that's not what ezekiel's saying all right Ezekiel's description should be something much, much larger than we've ever, ever seen on planet Earth. So that kind of corresponds with the Millennial Temple. It seems to make sense there. And another factor of Ezekiel's temple is that the glory of the Lord, as we're going to read here in a moment, will have returned by that point in time and will take up residence locally like it did, like he did in the time period during Moshe, right? When Israel uh, had the glory of the Lord and they were able to interact with it. So let's read this account. This is all within the context of this glory of the Lord accompanying the rapture and splitting the supernaturally um, splitting the eastern sky with the brilliance of Christ's return to gather his saints. So we're still within the larger context of Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, the return of Yeshua, the sign of the end of the age and of Yeshua's return. Let's read Ezekiel. Later, later. Uh, Ezekiel later had the privilege of also predicting the return of God's glory to earth. Ezekiel is given a supernatural tour, as it were, of the restored temple. After an extensive tour of the temple, Ezekiel reports that he was led to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, and behold, the glory of God, of the God of Israel, was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Ezekiel 43, 1 and 2, emphasis added by Van Campen. I believe this event that we're seeing here is not the rapture 
but is instead at the end of the week, at the end of the 70th week, at the end of the tribulation period, after the battle of Armageddon, Yeshua returns, defeats the Antichrist with the armies of heaven, which includes us, riding on white horses with him. He defeats the Antichrist and the false prophet, pitches him and tosses them alive into the lake of fire, and then draws the nations into the Valley of Decision, Jehoshaphat, to um, do the sheep and goat judgments and determine who's going to actually enter into the millennial kingdom and rule and reign with him. And so we have the establishment of the millennial kingdom along with the millennial temple that gets rebuilt, I believe, supernaturally by Yeshua. Based on the dimensions of the temple, it's probably something that he will build or oversee at the very least. So this occurrence that Ezekiel is describing where the glory of God returns from the way of the east and comes through the gate facing the Mount of Olives, exactly the uh, return of, in other words, it's, it's the opposite of the way the Spirit left earlier in Ezekiel. So he left through the east gate, and now he's going to return back from the east. Well, um, this seems to correspond with the end of the seventh week. Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Van Campen continues, it becomes quickly evident that the Lord's glory will return in exactly the reverse order and path by which it departed. It will first return. Uh, it will return first when Christ is revealed at the second coming and later when he returns to rule over Israel. So you see the the two events kind of split apart by the rapture as the as Christ's second coming and then when uh the the uh, or even and or when um christ rules over israel at the millennial time period the prophet goes on to say that the glory of the lord came into the house i.e the temple again this is not the antichrist temple that gets defiled why would the glory of the lord come into that thing rather i think that thing's basically a temporary um it's going to get wiped out it's going to get destroyed in the aftermath and in the um uh, when Israel is just absolutely um, split in half, uh, and uh, I mean practically destroyed by the earthquakes and things like that, it'll just it'll 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 it's 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 a disposable temple. But Van Campen talks about how that the prophet goes on to say that the glory of the Lord came into the house, i.e., the temple, i.e., Ezekiel's temple, the the one that Yeshua is going to occupy, by way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord. We're talking about the brilliance of the of God himself, which is Yeshua. The glory of the Lord filled the house. Verse 4 and 5, emphasis added. And so the glory will return from the way of the east, and the earth will shine with his glory. And then the glory of the Lord will come into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. Verses, emphasis added. Van Campen continues as we're winding our study down in these last 10 minutes. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus, now we're coming full circle again with the Matthew passages, Jesus clearly described those two separate glorious events. First, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So that's verse 27 of Matthew, along with verse 30, tacked on to the end. If you put the two together, 27, and then jump over to 30 real quick and skip the, the two verses in the middle. So Van Campen reminds us that this glorious coming of Christ is, 
from the east will initiate the day of the Lord. So let me show you that chart one more time. Um, we can see it here with the sixth seal down at the bottom of your screen, signs in the sky, right? That, that John recorded in the book of Revelation. But this corresponds with the arrow on the top that says coming of the Son of Man, date unknown. But notice the blue section called the Great Trib. See that right there near the middle, but slightly to the right? The great trib in the blue is cut short by the yellow part of the arrow that says Day of the Lord with the seventh seal, the trumpets, and the bowls. Well, that's what Van Cameron's talking about. The rapture and the um, commencement of the Day of the Lord should be back-to-back -back events, possibly even on the same day. Seen from a different chart. It's the two arrows that are kissing each other. The pre-wrath rapture, the, the, the um, white arrow pointing up. The second coming, uh, the black arrow pointing down. Second coming there being the second coming of Messiah initiated by the rapture first. Not to be confused with his physical return to planet Earth later on on the farthest right of the chart at the end of that part that says God's wrath, day of the Lord. So, um, God's wrath and the rapture are back-to-back -back events. We have this here on this chart where we have the number six, uh, which is the cosmic disturbance, right? The darkness uh, that surrounds planet Earth because of the sun, moon, and stars losing their light. Coupled back-to-back -back with the day of the Lord with number seven, the trumpet judgments that are poured out as six and seven seals um, commence chronologically. So the great, the great Tribulation is cut short by the Day of the Lord. And then if we zoom in a little bit on that, 6 and 7, we see the cosmic disturbances at the beginning of this event, this kind of mini slice of events, and then the apostasy of man and sin being part of those convergences. I'm not saying that they, things have to happen all exactly the way they're lined up in this chart. Can we know for sure with 100% certainty that that's, these are the way it's that these are the order? No. Um, but what we are certain is that the sixth seal is de a description of the supernatural darkness, and then the day of the Lord is uh commenced uh, or commences with um this brightness or glory of the lord uh that is um going to be seen by everyone let's uh keep reading van campen here second in a latter part of the olivet discourse christ explains to his disciples that when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne matthew 25 31 emphasis added and he's going to rule over israel so um the glorious coming of christ described in this passage which occurs after his coming to initiate the day of the lord will occur on the first day of the millennium so don't get confused thus confirming ezekiel's prophecy concerning the future return of god's glory um, so don't get confused when we're talking about this return of Christ and the glory that will accompany him. We've got a preview of it at the rapture with the glory of Christ um, piercing the darkness caused by the sixth seal. And then he raptures the saints up to be with him in the air. But then planet Earth is thrust into the melting pot known as the day of the lord with all of its judgment from the um, trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments and we are excluded from that as believers um 
the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb that are poured out upon wicked, unrepentant, sinful humanity along with the Antichrist and his beast kingdom. So we'll be exempt from that. But the glory accompanying the rapture is that first um, a glimpse or a witness of the glory of the Lord from humanity, from their perspective, only to be um, seen as the glory of the Lord later on uh, when he returns to establish his kingdom and set up his thousand-year rule. So we're drawing this part of our study to a close. We're about five minutes out. Let's keep reading. Um, well, let me see. The glorious return of Christ. We're talking. You know what? This is actually a great place to stop. We can stop a little bit early because now um, the Van Camp is going to talk about your redemption draweth nigh, and we're still talking about the glory of the Lord. This is kind of an excursus on this aspect. We're going to begin to um, look at when the glory of the Lord pierces the darkness and the accompanying um, uh, a rapture event takes place. Will the world be expecting this? No. This is why they are living like in the darkness, like Paul describes as a thief in the night. The return of Yeshua will be like a thief in the night because they are dwelling in darkness, living in darkness. And yet we believers are not children of the dark. We're children of the light because of the light of Messiah that is in us and because of the Holy Spirit that um, is active and alive within us. So we're going to begin to talk about how that the day of the Lord spoken about in the Tanakh is on the one hand a day of doom and gloom and judgment for the wicked humans, the earth dwellers that are alive during that time, and yet at the same time, simultaneously, it is a day of rejoicing for those of us who are believers, because it is the, it is the day that signals our redemption, which is drawing closer, drawing nigh. So we're going to stop right here with just a few minutes early um, because I don't want to jump into this topic. But, and we'll pick this up next week with the, your redemption draweth nigh. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies. Um, 
uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. We'll take this 30 minutes and unpack the explanation of this verse in the book of Proverbs from a Trinitarian perspective. Remember, we are um, contrasting the Trinitarian understanding of this passage with the Unitarian understanding. BiblicalUnitarian.com's website says that Proverbs 8.23, which reads, I, wisdom, was appointed from eternity from the beginning... Uh, Biblical Unitarian says that this is a passage about not Jesus, but about the wisdom of God, which is an idea in God's mind. It is an attribute of God, and therefore, there is no second person or third person of the Trinity, according to Biblical Unitarian. God is numerically one with himself. There's only one God, and the Father God is numerically one with the being known as God. So God the Father is God is the Father and the Father just is God. That's how the biblical Unitarians would describe him. And therefore he's he's a monad. He's not a trinet. He's not a triad. Who is Jesus then? Jesus is the human being that was born in the first century of his parents Mary and Joseph. So who is wisdom? Well wisdom is a thought that God utilized or a, an attribute that God utilized to create the world but it's not the pre-existent Christ. So, who is the Word of God, or what is the Word of God? According to Biblical Unitarian, it's a concept. It's one of God's attributes, but it's not a second hypostatic person, um, hypostasis. Uh, the Word of God is simply God's thoughts. It exists in His head, and God used those thoughts to create the world. So, when we're talking about this passage, which I'm going to read here from the uh, English, the Greek, and the Hebrew, we're asking ourselves, does the Bible portray wisdom as Yeshua, or is there another way to understand this? The Trinitarian uh, understanding can go one of a few different ways. We could see that wisdom is, in fact, Yeshua in his pre-incarnate state. Wisdom is, is Yeshua... Yeshua is wisdom personified, and therefore wisdom is another way of describing the um, pre-existent Christ using terminology such as the Word of the Lord or Lady Wisdom. I know the, the, the fact that wisdom is spoken about as a female throws a lot of people off, but don't let that confuse you. It's just a grammatical, I'm sorry, it's just the um, way that Hebrew uses um, gender in its language. Uh, there's masculine, there's feminine. It doesn't mean that wisdom is a woman. It's just a feminine Hebrew word. But we do know from the passage of the New Testament that Yeshua is described as wisdom personified. So, 
when we look at this passage in Proverbs and we begin to peel back the understanding, we have a commentary that I put together, very short, we're reading through that, and then we're also going to read through, so we'll look at that here in a moment, we're also going to in time look at this commentary from Sam Shamoon, who is a... A Muslim apologist, he is a former Muslim-turned-Christian apologist, and so he's going to talk about um, this passage in Proverbs as well. But first, let's just read the passage in question, backing up to verse 22 in the English from um, John Barich's website. Um, we have Yahweh possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. The Hebrew says, um, Adonai Kanini Rishit Darko Derek Mipa'alive Me'atz. And the words that are of importance for us are the, the possessed me at the beginning, Kanini Rishit. So, what does it mean that Yahweh possessed? wisdom at the beginning before his works of old the the uh, greek below that says kurias ektisen me arkane hadon autu ace erga autu and the words that were translated from the hebrew of kanini reshit possessed me in the beginning which i'll go ahead and highlight for you so you can see what i'm talking about right there kanini reshit gets translated into um the Greek as ektisen me arke possessed me uh, from the beginning or established me before time was in the beginning, right? Me arkane hadon. So, what is the meaning of these words? Well, we get the context as we keep reading. In parallel fashion, poetic parallelism, verse 23 of the proverb says, I was set up from everlasting so now instead of saying i was possessed or i was gotten um uh the lord possessed me or acquired me now the the proverb writer says i was set up from everlasting from the beginning or ever the earth was and the um some of the words were even used again the merosh from the beginning uh, the corresponding Greek down at the bottom says, Proto Ionos et the Meliosen me in Arche, even before he made the depths, before the fountains of the water came forth. So, what are we to make of these passages? Well, we just got through reading last week about the Unitarian position. And we're, what I'm doing for this commentary is I'm taking biblical Unitarian's position and I'm kind of merging it with the generic Unitarian, non Trinitarian position. So that in my commentary, I'm just talking about the Unitarian perspective without always saying that it's biblical Unitarian because of the similarities between the generic Unitarian position and the specific denomination known as Biblical Unitarianism. But now let's turn to the Trinitarian interpretation and begin to um, answer the objection itself. Remember, Biblical Unitarian is non-Trinitarian. They object to the Trinitarian position. So let's begin to answer that. Right? These are my own words that I put together. Trinitarian Christian blog writer Scott Lapierre provides the following insightful observations when speaking of Jesus as wisdom personified. So, what I'm going to describe for us is one of the Trinitarian perspectives, but it's certainly not the only 
Trinitarian perspective that is available. All right, let's uh, read this quote from Lapierre. Quote, when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, it was as though wisdom itself became a man. Wisdom was incarnated. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, or all that God was, the Word was. This refers, he says, to Jesus. And then John 1.14 says, quote, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, end quote. These are familiar words for any of us, for those of us who read our Bibles. He continues, the Greek word for the word is logos, which captures the Greek idea of divine reason or the mind of God. So it sounds so far like the biblical Unitarians have a leg to stand on. Right, because we're talking about the word of God, which is in the mind of God. And when we're looking at the Greek word logos, not the Hebrew word davar, but the Greek word logos, we've already got this existing cultural understanding and nuance supplied by the Greek writers that allows for us to realize, allows for us to say that log, excuse me, logos uh, captures the idea of divine reason or the mind of God. But let's keep reading. This author says, he's a Trinitarian author, he says, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we could say that the wisdom of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So, again, this sounds very almost Unitarian. Um, in a, it sounds like it's an agreement. It comports well with a Unitarian um, understanding where we say, well, it's not really that the pre-existent second person of the trinity became a human being it's instead that the wisdom of god became personified or took on flesh right that's kind of how unitarians describe it but let's keep reading um this author says since the wisdom of god became flesh in the person of jesus christ we see wisdom manifested in jesus life and so on the one hand it is true i would agree that there's nothing wrong with saying that wisdom took on humanity. Wisdom became the man known as Jesus. I can agree with that language. And yet a Unitarian might say, see, there's very proof. The Greek word logos is not necessarily a description of a, of a second hypostasis, a second person. It's instead a description of the mind of God and the wisdom of God that God himself possesses, one of his eternal attributes. And yet this attribute took on humanity that's the way they answer john 1 1 when they're talking about the word became flesh they say that well it's not that the word was a was a second person ever it was just the mind of god let's keep reading my own commentary the trinitarian interpretation of proverbs 8:23 is based on the following observations so why do we trinitarians believe that the wisdom of god is Yeshua. Why do some of us believe that? Not all of us do, but some of us do. Let's read one, uh, some of the reasons that drive this understanding from a Trinitarian perspective. When we're looking at this passage in the book of Proverbs, we notice that the, the verse speaks of wisdom as being created by God. This suggests that wisdom is distinct from God, but also that she is in a unique relationship 
to him. Now, I know it says created by God. I can hear the Jehovah's Witnesses cheering and clapping and applauding and saying, Amen, Brother Trinitarian. You finally have seen the light. Jesus was created by God before the world was created. There it is, black and white. You just admitted it. Jesus, as wisdom, was created by God as the first of his creations. And then this creation whipped out the rest of the world. Nope. That's not what I'm saying, even though I am saying that the passage uses this language to describe creation of wisdom. But we're going to find out that is that exactly what the passage means? Yes and no. Okay, you'll you'll understand more as I keep reading. And I go on to say, note, we will learn more about why Bible commentaries refer to wisdom as a she, viz. Lady wisdom when we examine the Hebrew of Proverbs 8.23 down below. Right, like I read it in Hebrew earlier, but there's more to the Hebrew that we need to unpack. Bullet point number two, the verse also states, we Trinitarians admit, that wisdom was created at the beginning of his work and the firstborn of his acts of old. End quote. This suggests that wisdom is eternal. And pre-existent and that she's somehow involved in the creation process so here's where we begin to start understanding the nate the force of the hebrew and the greek where it talks about wisdom was possessed at the beginning or created or acquired or the greek is even gonna suggest brought forth in a birthing process it's not necessary that wisdom had a beginning because we have to think about it if wisdom is something that God did not possess at the beginning, i.e., if it's an attribute that he was that was absent from his arsenal of attributes, and yet he then acquired it when he first began to create the world, then we would have to admit that God changed and that he was not wise prior to his own creation, and that his own wisdom is contingent upon his creating it first and then using that attribute to create the rest of the world. That doesn't really fit well with any really explanation, whether it be Trinitarian, Unitarian, or Jehovah's Witness, Arian, right? Even the Socinians don't follow from that. In other words, all three of us, if I were to put all three of us in a room, Trinitarians, Socinians, which are modern day um, which are the the the, the, the uh, four fathers of the modern day biblical Unitarians, and then I would have put the Arians in the room, and the Arians are the forefathers of the modern day Jehovah's Witnesses. If I were to put all three of us in the room, I don't think any of us would be ready to explain that wisdom is something that God didn't have at first. He's the all-wise God. He's always possessed wisdom. He's eternal. He's eternally wise. It's not an attribute that he gained for himself at the time of creation or that he had to create in order to use as a tool to create the rest of the world none of us are ready to go in that direction and yet we're talking about this creation of wisdom or the bringing forth of wisdom or the birthing of wisdom what what gives there well we'll get to that when the time comes but for now um to say that wisdom was utilized by God or that God has wisdom suggests that wisdom is eternal and pre-existent. And when I say pre-existent, we have to remember that from our perspective, time began when God created time. Let me pause and let that sink in for a moment. God created time itself. So when we think about when things have their beginning... We have to 
exclude God from that discussion. God is not a thing that has a beginning. God is outside of time and therefore outside of beginning. So time has a beginning. Therefore, creation has a beginning. And everything that is part of what we know as the known universe has an origin, but God is outside of that. So wisdom must fall into one of those two categories. Is wisdom eternal or is wisdom part of God's created order? On the one hand, God, wisdom being a part of God is outside of time, and yet wisdom is spoken of in the book of Proverbs poetically as being brought forth, being birthed being acquired by God. So we'll have to get to that when, we, when the time comes. For now, we're just kind of teasing our brain with what in the world does that mean? And then the final bullet point is that in the New Testament, Proverbs 8.23 is applied to Jesus Christ, and that's why we get that uh, from our Trinitarian uh, explanations. This suggests that the Son of God is the wisdom of God personified, and that's just kind of a base view of it, a very simplified explanation. Okay, let's begin to peel some of these um, um, uh, mysteries back a little bit. I go on to say the Trinitarian interpretation, or one of them, of Proverbs 8.23 is also supported by the broader teaching of the Bible about the Trinity itself. Listen up, you Unitarians. The Bible teaches that there is one God, but that He exists in three persons. We've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm just using extremely simplified language in this uh, short essay here for those who get lost in these types of technical discussions. There are a great number of people, a good number of people, who watch my videos, who write in, and who don't even have the, the what we might call the fundamental understanding of who God is and how he can exist as Trinity. So when I wrote this essay, I wrote it at a level that I believe that they, even they can understand. This is not in, this is in comparison to my other commentary that I wrote, the lengthy, more technical commentary known as Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity, which is available at my own website, to which we took three years and went through each line and uh, created video um, counterparts to them. There's a YouTube channel that I own, and there is a playlist dedicated to that particular series on Exploring the Shema. I'll put a little link in the description below. So we've got Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God, all sharing the same um, essence of God, right? The um, nature and glory of God is shared by God because He is one God. He's one being, and yet He exists in three hypostases, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they are unique. They are distinct, and yet they are, they are each God in the sense that they that God is eternal, one God, three persons. So I say it this way, these three persons are equal and eternal, and they are all involved in the work of creation and redemption. All right, so now let's begin to look at some of the strengths of the Trinitarian position that I'm espousing to, that I, that I subscribe to. We already looked at some of the weaknesses, and we'll continue to look at weaknesses of the non-Trinitarian position. One of chief being, I'll just remind you, one of the primary weaknesses of the non-Trinitarian position, in my experience, is the fact that they undercut the authority of the New Testament scriptures, the Bible. They pay lip service, as it were, to um, unique passages in the New Testament that give 
us the clues to understanding that Jesus is very God, that Jesus existed as God in the past, that he's eternal and one with God because he is God. Even prior to his, his, his um, incarnation, he, he had existence. And not existence merely as a thought in the mind of God or in the, the intellect of God, but as a person who had um, a will and uh, had uh, certain actions and tasks and prerogatives that he carried out on behalf of God. In other words, as the agent of God, like the angel of the Lord, was a spokesman for God, can speak in first person as God, and carried the authority of God, and yet was a separate and distinct entity, a, 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 a person from God that was recognized and was able even to interact with humans at a visible level. And this is all the more, um, makes Trinitarianism all the more attractive, attractive because the angel of the Lord could be, was visible. He could be seen by humans. And yet John, as well as other biblical writers, remind us that no one has ever seen God. God can't be seen by humans. And so if the angel of the Lord was seen and Abraham ate and saw God, then who was he seeing? He must have been seeing a person of God who we Trinitarians would describe as the pre-incarnate Yeshua. So weaknesses of the Trinitarian of the uh, Unitarian position include um really paying lip service to those verses that talk about Yeshua pre-existing with the Father, coming down from heaven, being the only one who came from heaven, the one who's returning to be with his Father, the bread come down from heaven, the only one who has seen God, like the book of John, the one who's returning to be with his Father, the one that Yeshua said to Nicodemus, no one has come down from heaven except the one who has, no one has descended except the one who no one will ascend except the one who already descended, the one who no, no one can go up to heaven except the one who already came down. So, I mean, it's clear to me that Yeshua is referring to, and I'll put these in the, um, in a post-production, almost like a mini-study on, on its own one of these days where I'll show, just kind of in your face, to non-Trinitarians, passage after passage where Yeshua talks about that he came down from heaven. Well, the Unitarian position in its weakness has to either ignore those passages or somehow convince us that what Yeshua is talking about is not his own pre-existence, but instead is talking about himself existing in the mind of God, but not as a person, instead of as a, an abstract idea, a concept that God used to create the world. So let's look at the strengths of the Trinitarian interpretation. We've got uh, eight minutes left in our study as we're winding this part down. This is a very short study. It's only 30 minutes long that gets broken up into two parts later on in post-production. Here's what I have to say. The Trinitarian interpretation of Proverbs 8.23 has a number of strengths, so listen up. First, it is faithful to the text of the verse. The verse clearly states that wisdom was created by God and that she was involved in the creation process. This suggests, I say, that wisdom is not simply a quality or attribute of God, but a distinct person. And what I mean that is that when it talks about wisdom involved in the creation process, wisdom existing eternally alongside of God, uh, being not just an attribute of God, yes, it is an attribute of God, but it's a distinct person in the sense that in agency fashion, God utilized wisdom as a co-creator or as the 
agent of creation, meaning if it was a soul God, a monad God, a singular person of God that created the universe, why then do we have language that indicates that there was this agent of God or this instrument of God? In the Old Testament, we see this showing up in the um, plurals of let us create man in our image after our likeness, where we've got the language of the plurals indicating that there's one being speaking to a being of equal status, of equal image, of equal character, of equal power as a not just a co-creator, but a co-image bearer. You have to listen to the language. Let us create, that's the action, in our image and after our likeness. That suggests equal image and equal likeness, something that the angels or other beings of heaven cannot possibly possess. Even if God somehow supposedly used them as co-creators, the images are different. The image of God and the image of angels aren't the same. And yet God says, let us create in our image after our likeness. He doesn't say, let us create in my image after my likeness, as if man was created only in the image of God, in the sense that um, the angels helped him create, but the end product is the image that God bears. So the point I'm trying to make is that... Um, Whoever God was speaking to, which I believe it was the other members of the Trinity, particularly the Word of God that became flesh in John, um, God was speaking to a member of the Trinity who has the very image of God, the same image, bears the same image. They share one image. In fact, it doesn't say, let us create man in our images after our likenesses. So did you catch that how... God said, let us create man in our image after our likeness. A single image, meaning God's image that is the archetype, is an image that only God alone possesses. It's not an angelic image, and not after our images, or something like that. And he doesn't say, let us create after my image. Meaning, we see both the unity of God and the plurality of God in that verse where it says, so God created man after the image of God. God created man after, man after his image, in the image of God created he them, male and female created he them. The very next verse, Genesis 1.27, which follows after verse 26, the one I'm picking on here. So, when we look at Lady Wisdom, we're talking about, yes, an attribute or quality of God, but not merely an attribute or quality of God, but in the same breath, a distinct person of God. So this comports well with the Trinitarian explanation that goes in that direction. And yet we still haven't explained why wisdom is talked about as being created. We'll talk about that later. Just for now, I, I want to keep teasing you with that. Second, in the second um, uh, paragraph here, I say, the Trinitarian interpretation is supported by the New Testament. Right. This is where the, the weakness of the Unitarian position is more glaring. The New Testament interpretation, I say, applies Proverbs 8.23 to Jesus Christ, which suggests that the Son of God is the wisdom of God personified. And we'll look at those verses later on, but I just, I'm just um, stating it in a very simplified manner first. And then uh, my third uh, um observation here is that the trinitarian interpretation is consistent with the broader teaching of the bible about trinity and again if we're going to study this topic 
We cannot cherry pick and select only the verses, either from the Old or the New Testament, that suit our own needs, that fit with our own personal theology. That's not a very fair way to treat the Bible, and it's certainly not the most advantageous way to convince someone that your argument is the most sound. What you want to do is allow the entire Bible to speak to whatever issue you're addressing, and therefore you can begin to realize that even if we've got something that was shrouded in mystery in the Old Testament, such as the Incarnation, it is nevertheless revealed in the New and then supported by the glimpses of the Trinity in the Old. So there is a broader teaching of Trinity found in both sections of our Bible, and that's why we Trinitarians believe in Trinity. It's not simply because the Incarnation was revealed in the New Testament and we've suddenly got this brand new Johnny-come-lately revelation that the that God is Trinity, as if he didn't exist in Trinity in the old, and then he suddenly became something that he wasn't in the new. That's not at all the way Trinitarian theology works, For in case people don't, under, don't understand exactly how the Trinity came about. Rather, it's that God has always existed as Trinity, even in the Old Testament, but he was just not revealed as Trinity in an explicit manner until we get to the events that the New Testament recorded for us. That's the, the best way to understand it. So, the Bible teaches, I say that there's one God, but that he exists in three persons. Did he become three persons in the New Testament? No. Did Jesus simply become God when God created him at the beginning of creation like the Jehovah's Witnesses slash Arians believe? No, that's not the way it works either. There was no God that was created by God, like a lesser G-O-D that was created by the greater G-O-D like the um, uh, Arians wanted to imagine or like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach or like the greater lesser Yahweh heresy wants to imagine. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was capital G-O-D, not a little G-O-D like the New World Translation wants to believe. But even then, if he is a God, nevertheless, he's still a category that's above and beyond anything else that exists in the world. So they still are in a corner where they can't quite explain how there was this little God that was created alongside of the greater God. How do they explain that when God himself says in numerous places throughout his word that he is the only God that exists? Whether it's greater or lesser, he still says, I'm the only God. We just have to try to figure out, is it a capital G or lowercase g? And neither Hebrew nor Greek have a, a capital lowercase letters in the original manuscripts. Uh, at least not until the later um, forms of Greek uh, allowed us to see uppercase and lowercase. Originally, the old, some of the older Greek manuscripts had a form of Greek that was simply all caps. All right, let's keep reading. So, the God exists as one God, yet three persons. The Trinitarian interpretation of Psalm 83, Psalm 823 sees wisdom as one of the three persons of the Trinity. Let's keep reading. We've got... Um, you know what? I don't want to keep reading. We're right at the time frame, right at the time mark at 30 minutes, and this is just a great place to stop. We'll pick this up next week with some brief Hebrew insights where we're going to begin to try to understand why would the writers interpret wisdom as something that's created or something that's acquired if God has possessed wisdom from the beginning and if wisdom is one of God's eternal attributes and if Jesus is an uncreated um, thing like we biblical trinitarians believe why would some commentaries describe wisdom as either created or translators translations use the word of words of created or being acquired or something how does that work out we'll begin to look at that a little later but that'll do it for trinitarian response to biblical unitarianism
Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I'm thankful for your words, and I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit who makes the word alive unto me, allows me to understand it in a more um, clear uh, clear fashion, a more proper understanding, a more proper way. I have an intellectual understanding of the word just by merely reading and studying the background, the original languages, the culture in which it was written, um, and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And yet, it requires more than that if I'm going to be pleasing to you. If I want to fulfill the righteous requirement that the word imposes upon me, then I can only do that if I surrender to the living word of God, namely Messiah Yeshua. Thank you that you, O Lord Yeshua, are the very glory of God that we studied about in our first segment where we're talking about the um, rapture and the second coming. We know that you are the very glory of your Father and that it pleases the Father that you represent Him in this way, that you are His very glory, that as people look at Him, they see you because indeed no one can see you except they see Yeshua. No one has seen God at any time only um, uh, the, um, the, the Son who reveals the Father. He's the one, Lord, you are the one that makes the Father known. And so you can say to Thomas, to look at me is to look at the Father. Don't ask us, show us the Father. Don't say that, doubting Thomas, oh, Philip, and all you other disciples that were there present. Don't ask to see the Father. You're looking at me, you're seeing the Father. So thank you, Lord, that... This is how we are best. That how we can best understand um, the uh, the verses that we interpret. So thank you that you have revealed yourself as Trinity to us in the pages of your Word, and so we have no excuse to um, misunderstand exactly who you are. But. Nevertheless, Lord, we continue to ask and seek your face, and we continue to ask for your spirit to reveal yourself to us so that we can better understand you and so that we can um, serve you more wholeheartedly. Thank you for carrying us along during these difficult times and days in which we live in, days that are filled with um, confusion, um, with war, with destruction, with pain, and with suffering, with, with sin and wickedness and rebellion. And yet, at the same time, we know that these days will come to an end and usher in your glorious kingdom, days that are earmarked by righteousness and um, obedience and the knowledge of the Lord. And so we will look with anticipation for your return uh, to usher in your kingdom and to establish your righteousness. And we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashem Yeshua. Omen. 